This is Pandemic Planet, the podcast where we talk about the urgent health security threats facing the world, the geopolitical and societal challenges they present, and how the United States can best lead health security efforts abroad while protecting Americans at home. Pandemic Planet is the podcast series of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. While our sister podcast series, Coronavirus Crisis Update, focuses on what's happening in America, here on Pandemic Planet, we'll look at the global and geopolitical effects of health security threats. Welcome to Pandemic Planet. Hello, I'm Catherine Bliss, host of Pandemic Planet. My colleague, Steve Morrison, was in Germany recently to participate in the Munich Security Conference. This year, the conference featured a number of discussions and high-level sessions regarding health security in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. Steve was able to sit down with several global health leaders to hear their current thinking regarding the trajectory of the pandemic and how we, as a global community, can be better prepared for outbreaks and health crises in the future. I hope you enjoy this episode in our Munich Security Conference mini-series, which can also be found on the CSIS podcast, Coronavirus Crisis Update. Today, Friday, February 18th, I'm in Munich, Germany at the Munich Security Conference, and I'm joined today by Dr. Richard Hatchett, CEO of the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, CEPI. It's great to see you here, Richard. Welcome. Thanks, Steve. It's great to see you, too. We were together exactly two years ago here at the Munich Security Conference in February 2020 at that very dramatic, very uncertain front end of the pandemic. We're now back together. What is the core message or core messages that you wish to impart to the heads of state and security and foreign policy leaders gathered here in Munich at this moment in time? I mean, this is a premier global security event. There'll be at least 30 heads of state here in the next day or two, 100 ministers, mostly of foreign affairs and security. What are your core messages to them, and why is it important that someone who leads in your world should be here at this moment in time? I think the top message that I would like to deliver is that pandemics and pandemic preparedness, maybe more importantly, pandemic preparedness, need to be viewed as a security challenge, not as a health challenge, not as a development challenge, but a security challenge. And the kinds of investment that we need to make to reduce our risk of such threats in the future, we will have difficulty securing the resources, sustaining the commitment if we continue to categorize it as a health or a development problem. Of course, we're in Munich at a moment when the tensions and p- potential conflict in Ukraine uh, are dominating everything, and that's a much more traditional security issue. I think the message that I would like world leaders and ministers to walk away from, those who participate in the health security aspects of the conference, is the fact that we have just had a pandemic does not discharge our risk of future infectious disease threats in any way. It is not like a volcano. We are hopefully emerging into some kind of transitional state with COVID-19, but as I have often pointed out, COVID-19 is already the seventh global infectious disease crisis of the 21st century, the second pandemic. It won't be the last, and we need to invest in biological security in a way that we have not to date. Given the fatigue that 
populations are feeling, that political leaders are feeling, frankly, in terms of dealing with the pandemic. I think there will be a natural tendency, unfortunately, to try to turn to other issues now that this one seems to be subsiding. I do agree with you. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the gaps in funding and financing. And I'm assuming one of the big messages communicating is come to the table to support all of the different demands that are there. We'll get to that in a moment. There's been a lot of studies in the last two years of what has happened, many of them quite good. They've generated a raft of insights and concrete recommendations. Those provide us a framework for looking back retrospectively the last two years and thinking about the future. But there's oftentimes too many recommendations in these. And a lot of people that are smart and concerned and care about this issue but are not deeply invested in it and don't deal with it day by day ask me constantly, okay, what are the two to three top line priorities for the next two to five years? What should I have in my head as the top two to three priorities? Well, I think it depends on your diagnosis of what we've just lived through. I mean, my diagnosis is that the system that we had in place, the way the system was configured in early 2020 explains the results that we've observed with the pandemic. At CEPI, obviously, we focus principally on vaccine development and trying to secure equitable access to vaccine. And we've seen a miracle in terms of the production of new vaccines. I mean, almost 11 billion doses produced already two years since the emergence of the virus. That's an astounding result. But we have seen large gaps in equity and we've seen very differential access to that vaccine. And I think that is a result of the fact that vaccine manufacturing was concentrated in just a few locations. The first thing that we need to do looking forward the next two to five years is is work really, really hard to have more globally, more equitably distributed vaccine manufacturing. The second piece of the diagnostic, if you will, is that the financing arrangements at the beginning of the pandemic were completely inadequate to what was needed to respond to the pandemic. And we, we need new financing arrangements, both to provide support to countries where infectious disease threats emerge so that they can respond very, very aggressively, very, very early, and so that they are not disincentivized to notify the rest of the world when they pick up something unusual. That is the only opportunity that we have to prevent something with pandemic potential from becoming a pandemic. Similarly, there were no financing arrangements in place to support vaccine development, to support scaling up of manufacturing at risk, or to support procurement of of needed medical countermeasures. The third takeaway, and this is a little more subtle, is that we have an opportunity to drastically reduce future risk of epidemic or pandemic threats if we are willing to make the necessary investments. And address the necessary policy barriers to reducing that risk. What I mean by that is that we were able to respond as quickly as we did to COVID only because we had invested for years, both in the rapid response platforms and in developing coronavirus vaccines on those platforms. The vaccines that have dominated the response, at least in Western countries, the Pfizer, the Moderna, the AstraZeneca vaccines, we were working on coronavirus vaccines on mRNA and on the Chadox platform before COVID emerged. The fact that we had made those investments, that we were able to pivot those platforms as rapidly as we did to produce vaccines. We don't have that level of preparedness, in my mind, for any other threat other than coronaviruses. And we need to make very significant investments to be prepared for a wider range of threats. And we need to make sure that our rapid response platforms, they've now been 
transferred to many, 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 many veteran facilities around the world. We want to maintain that level of preparedness, and that can only be done through investment. You had talked a bit earlier about the transition. We are in a confusing and murky transition right now in the pandemic and in the international response, partly as a result of Omicron, the wall of immunity created through this extraordinarily fast mass infection, the mass immunizations that have happened across the world. We now have antivirals coming forward, not as quickly as we want, but they're providing a very new tool. We also have the reality that publics have grown exhausted and angry and frustrated, and they're mobilizing against many of the measures control the virus. They're changing the calculations of elected officials across a span of democratic and semi-democratic countries. We're seeing considerable debate now. Have we moved beyond the emergency into a phase of managing an endemic virus while continuing to guard against future variants? This has resulted in calls in some quarters for resetting targets and strategies. And it's running a big risk, it seems to me, that the wealthy and most powerful are going to conclude that this has really passed us. The most dangerous phase is passed, and it's time to move on to other things. When there are really pressing demands, it is not over. The virus has not stopped evolving. The virus is not done with us. Many parts of the world are struggling still, and still enduring pretty vicious ongoing outbreaks. How do you look at this murky transition in terms of the risks that it presents? We have to adapt and evolve, but there are risks in in the choices that we make. Well, you described it as a murky transition, and I would agree with that. I would actually add that I think it's also going to be a turbulent transition. Elected officials, the public, need to remember that the experience of the pandemic that they have observed in their immediate neighborhood is the experience of the pandemic in their immediate neighborhood. And I think you referred to the different experiences in the different places in the pandemic that different countries have. And it's not just a distinction between rich countries and poor countries. Even wealthy countries are having very different experiences with the pandemic. Just as an example, the biggest example, the one that raises a lot of concerns for a lot of people working in the field is China, which has had a zero COVID policy and have vaccinated their populations largely with inactivated vaccines, which are not thought to provide very enduring or very profound levels of protection. And how are they going to emerge from that? Another Without chaos. Without chaos. Yeah, we've written on this just recently. Another example is South Korea, which had an incredible response to the pandemic and managed it literally until the last month or so with test and trace, keeping numbers very, very low. But Omicron has kind of swept over them to the point that they've had to shift gears in their response. I am concerned that wealthy countries, which at least in Europe and the U.S. are by and large getting to a point where even recurrent waves of infection, this may be less true for the U.S. than in Europe, where the recurrent waves of infection are producing cases but not producing the stress on the hospitals. Those countries have underwritten a lot of the global response, and it has been a strain, and they have dug deep to provide the resources to respond. And they're getting tired, and they have other pressing needs already mentioned the Ukraine distracting the attention of world leaders, understandably. The need to continue to provide funds to flow resources to the parts of the world that have been underserved is acute. And I can imagine a scenario in which world leaders become progressively less willing to lay out the resources to support that response. I think that would be a really tragic mistake. If there is a decision to change the targets, That needs to be a decision that is owned by the countries in Africa and South America and Southeast Asia and other places that have struggled to to gain access to vaccine. Those countries may end up choosing not to pursue the 70% target that's been articulated as a global target. That is a real possibility. 
Amanda Glassman, in, in a recent report, pointed out that the cost of a course of the Pfizer vaccine ex exceeds the per capita health expenditure in many countries. And so those countries are going to be asking themselves you know, about their priorities, where they want to allocate their resources, but they need to own that decision. That should not be a decision imposed on them by wealthy countries getting bored or tired. Let's talk about CEPI. Tell us, first of all, how has its mission evolved over the last two years? Talk a little bit about what has become a big goal for you, which is a 100-day campaign. When the pandemic started, CEPI had fewer than 60 employees. Our leaning into the pandemic, raising the alarm, initiating vaccine development, leading the call with our partners at Gavi and WHO and now UNICEF for more equitable access to vaccines. I mean, we've been catapulted into a position as part of the global conversation about the disease that we just didn't occupy before the pandemic began. We've been pulled as an organization into aspects of vaccine development, vaccine access, and the supply chains that support vaccine production that really, when CEPI was founded, the original investors it didn't figure much. They didn't view that as, as within CEPI's remit. But when the pandemic emerged and the need was there, there were no organizations to address those problems, and they were adjacent to what we were doing, so we moved into them, and we've embraced them. And I think one particular area that we will be much more involved in going forward than we were or imagined ourselves to be responsible for is manufacturing large-scale manufacturing, tech transfer, and working to improve the global manufacturing system and capability you know, is going to be a major thrust for us in coming years. You mentioned the 100 days. The goal, as we've articulated, is to develop vaccines that are ready or able to be released at 100 days. Almost certainly that'll be in a targeted fashion. Ideally, it would be to flow a countermeasure into an area where a containment operation is underway and, and the vaccine would be administered in an effort to smother and incipient pandemic before it can become a global event. So Richard, let's continue a bit more on the manufacturing side. Describe for us the major changes that are underway in trying to reach a equitable, globally distributed manufacturing capacity. How much progress is being made? Have we overcome the resistance within industry? Are the partnerships forming? Are you optimistic? It's evolving dynamically. I mean, we're seeing some very positive signals. Moderna has signaled that they will build a facility in Africa. BioNTech is clearly demonstrating that they're interested and committed to doing so as well. On the company side, you know, it's a business opportunity, obviously, but it also will lead to enhanced global preparedness. We've clearly got political commitment in many regions of the world. I mean, Africa, most prominently through the African vaccine manufacturing strategies that they've developed. But similarly, in Southeast Asia, a number of countries in Southeast Asia, in South America, there's clearly a desire to achieve vaccine self-sufficiency. And I think they, through their experience in the pandemic, have seen the dangers of offshoring their health security. So you've got a convergence of commercial interest, political commitment, financial resources are clearly going to flow into this. Many of the high-income countries see the value from both a, a geopolitical but also from a security perspective in making these investments. The challenge for the long term, obviously, will be whether these facilities can be successful. Be sustainable. And be sustained. Yeah, exactly. The concerns that many have is it's not just building a facility and pumping out vaccines. I mean, the facility has to be embedded in an ecosystem that is prepared where you have an adequate workforce, where you've got adequate regulatory and quality environment. And investments in building those kinds of capacities as we're building bricks and mortar 
facilities uh, will be necessary as well. So it's going to be a years long process. But if in, as we transition out of the pandemic, if one of the things that the world accomplishes is that more globally distributed system, it will shorten the period of scarcity. It will reduce the inequities of access that we saw emerge during this pandemic. And that will be a good thing. We had started talking about the 100-day goal. And the whole idea behind the 100-day goal is if you can deliver a vaccine for deployment in an area that is fighting to suppress or contain a potential pandemic threat, and you can do that rapidly, there's a potential that you can smother the pandemic threat and prevent a pandemic. That's the ideal, obviously, with the 100-day goal. Having distributed manufacturing will contribute to that capability. But even more, if you have a vaccine that can begin to be used, at least in high-risk populations, even if the pandemic threat escapes its source of emergence and actually becomes pandemic, delivering the capability to produce vaccines more rapidly and having a global network of facilities that can begin production rapidly, you can drastically mitigate even uncontained outbreaks. Now, you're going to be very dependent, it seems to me, on the partnerships that you've been forming with the African Union, other regional bodies, other regional entities, with Institute Pasteur uh, in, in, in West Africa. We have this new agency created by the EU, HERA, which I think is going to be very important. And of course, BARDA, where you came from, which is going to remain very important. Say a bit about CEPI's role as a visionary, as a vision setting, as a facilitative entity in trying to alert people to what's needed to happen, but also to bring countries and these other international bodies into alignment around some solutions. It seems to me the change of your mission, one of the things that's emerged is you've widened to supply chains. You've taken on the manufacturing capacity, which is hugely complicated and demanding uh, mission charge. But you've also surged forward in being this visionary and facilitative entity that tries to forge and stimulate these partnerships. No, that's exactly right. I mean, I mean, what we're trying to foster is global collaboration around pandemic and epidemic preparedness. And I think the bulk of investment that we see coming out of the pandemic will be channeled through national institutes, research institutes, and regional arrangements. The emergence of the regional arrangements during the pandemic, the regional commitments, it is one of the more salutary things that we've seen. CEPI has played a role in, in many respects as a gap filler. Like we're looking at the entire system, looking at how the system's functioning and not allocating resources where it's functioning well, but allocating resources to build bridges or to fill gaps or to address problems that are otherwise being left unaddressed. And we've thought a lot about what is the role of an international organization as the world begins to make more investments in national health security or in regional mutual health security arrangements. You know, one of the images that comes to mind for me, for any of, of your listeners who've, who've seen World War Z, you know, the zombie movie was the scene where Israel was trying to build the wall and keep the zombies out, and it didn't work. And I think, you know, any country that thinks that it can solve its health security problems just by focusing on its national capabilities is profoundly mistaken. And national health security has to be built on a foundation of global health security. And I think Omicron illustrates that. To leave health security for developing countries as a, as a problem of development is to allow the possibility of a future Omicron to emerge somewhere that doesn't have the necessary defenses in place. And that problem can spread 
very, very rapidly to become a problem for everybody. I want to get to a very important question, important to me personally, which is, why is it so important that CEPI deepen its engagement with the United States government? I mean, you come out of the U.S. government, uh, years of leadership and service in our key institutions. There's been a lot of debate. There's authority now from Congress for the U.S. government to invest in CEPI. There's some funding under the American Rescue Plan that we're expecting will be invested. But we're trying to move towards a sustainable and predictable long-term relationship. And it's not just financial. At a much higher level, it's really around technical expertise, best practices, sharing, all the cross-exchange that comes between CEPI and, and the counterparts. Tell us a bit about what's the case for U.S. investing in CEPI. Well, let me answer the question of why is it important that the U.S. and CEPI have a strong relationship first. I think that leads naturally to the second question about why is it important for the U.S. to invest. The U.S. has so much scientific, technical, industrial capability. It has so much to offer to the global effort to prepare for these kinds of threats. And it should play a leadership role internationally. I will say without getting into the politics, the previous administration really was absent from an international leadership perspective during the first part of the pandemic. And that was really tragic. The absence of the U.S. in the international efforts was sorely felt. We have really, really appreciated the U.S. coming back into a position of leadership. When I was working in the U.S. government, we spent years trying to convince our other partners, our G7 partners, our NATO partners, to invest in medical countermeasures development, largely to no avail. They weren't willing to take on the kinds of investments and allocate the kinds of resources that were required. Now what we have an opportunity to do is to forge alliances between the U.S., which will continue to be a leader in this domain, Europe through HERA, you mentioned HERA, clearly now understands the need to develop these capabilities. Japan has SCARTA, I think. Italy has made through the Tuscan Life Sciences Program. The C in CEPI stands for coalition. I mean, we are a coalition now of 25, 26 countries, philanthropies that are all committed to addressing these issues. And I think for the U.S. not to be part of that coalition not to be assuming a leadership position within that coalition is to miss huge opportunities for coordination of effort and burden sharing, which is something that has been ostensibly a, a goal of the U.S. for many, many years in this domain. So here's the opportunity. CEPI is the organization that has been established to coordinate practical on-the-ground efforts to develop countermeasures and enhance preparedness. And you know the U.S. has only recently joined, and only by making a very small investment relative to the investments of other leading investors. I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier. We're beginning to understand that we need vaccines with longer-lasting immunity, more durability. We realize that we're going to need vaccines that are pan-coronavirus vaccines. We may need more specific vaccines as also vis-a-vis -vis Omicron. And we need to think carefully about the rising dependence on mRNA. I mean, we've entered a period where that has been something that scored tremendous success, but over the long term, there's many other options and the like. I've just thrown at you a number of complicated and big issues, but I know you think about these every day, and I just wanted to get your view on what lies ahead in the development of the next generation of vaccines. Well, we've been arguing for almost a year at this point that the emergence of the variants, first alphas and betas and gamma, delta, now Omicron, was telling us that the first generation, I've taken to calling them response vaccines, which have performed extremely 
well, but they weren't the vaccines that we needed for long-term coexistence with this very plastic virus, which is continuing to demonstrate its capability to evolve and to surprise us. The real question is, I mean, and this is a, a science question, a biology question, is whether we can develop vaccines that provide enduring immunity that are broadly protective across different variants that are variant proof, as it were. We need to think about where we want to be with respect to the virus in five years, assuming the virus is going to continue to behave in the way that it has behaved to date. And if we are satisfied with the vaccines that we have and chasing the virus, which is what we're doing now, then we're fine. If we're not satisfied, and I don't think anybody really is satisfied, then we need to be making investments in the underlying science and in exploring new concepts of more sophisticated vaccines that provide you know, these attributes that we want. Easy to administer, cheap, enduring immunity, broadly protective, where you don't have to have a booster every four to six months. We cannot be in a position of having to vaccinate the entire world every four to six months in perpetuity. So we need to be making investments in these newer, better, more broadly responsive vaccines. Whether that's going to be biologically feasible remains to be seen. I mean, the HIV example, of course, is present in everyone's mind. You know, we've been working on HIV vaccines with limited, very limited success for almost years. four decades. Yeah, exactly. Hopefully, coronaviruses will be more tractable, but we must make those investments if we're going to develop those vaccines in a time frame that's acceptable. I want to come back also to China. You mentioned zero COVID. We've written on this recently. China, you could argue, is acutely vulnerable. Less than 1% of its population has been infected and carries any immunity from that. Yes, it has a very high coverage with Sinovac and Sinopharm, but we know the lasting protections are minimal there. And it's relied on pretty fierce closure of its international borders, mass lockdowns for small outbreaks, very intrusive controls and the like. And the question is, how do they get out of that? How do they transition out? Others, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore have made some success. We're seeing the troubles Hong Kong is having this week, which is terrible. It's not something that is an easy path out. And it's one that, of course, the West cannot be preaching about. The United States with 920,000 deaths and 80 million infected can hardly preach to China with 5,000 deaths and just over 100,000 reported cases. What are your thoughts on China and the future and getting out from under these constraints of zero COVID? Well, actually, I think there possibly is a technological escape route for China. The vaccines that the West has largely relied on have been the mRNA and the viral vector vaccines, which have many of the positive things we just talked about, but have this problem with waning immunity. The recombinant vaccines, the protein-based vaccines, all of which are administered with immune-stimulating adjuvants, are just coming online. Novavax was the first. Clover, which is actually a Chinese company, is a protein-based vaccine that CEPI's invested in, is maturing, although it's not going to be ready until you know, probably middle of the year or later in the year at the earliest. SK-Bio, South Korean vaccine, GBP-510, is another protein-based vaccine administered with, with an adjuvant. They partnered with GSK. I think the protein-based vaccines may be a good generation 1.5 or maybe second generation for a lot of reasons. I mean, they're cheaper to produce. They don't have complicated cold chain requirements. And the adjuvants may provide real benefits, particularly in the populations at higher risk, like the, the elderly or the immunocompromised. I could imagine one possible pathway forward for China would be to follow the vaccination campaign with the inactivated vaccines, to follow that on with boosters 
using the new protein-based vaccines. I don't know that that's going to be a solution, but I, th I think China is going to have to switch to new vaccination strategies. And they may be disinclined to embrace the mRNA vaccines for all kinds of reasons. Let's start just with the limitations of the vaccines themselves. So it'll be interesting to see how the situation in China unfolds. I mean, I think they may have a turbulent transition as we move into our long-term coexistence with the virus, given the way they've approached it. You're approaching a replenishment in early March. I'd like to ask you to say a few words about that. You know, former UK Prime Minister Gordon Brown had a column in the Financial Times yesterday pointing to $16 billion gap, large shortfalls for Gavi, Global Fund, WHO. You're all out in the marketplace, all worthy institutions in this uncertain period who are central to the global response and building forward into the future in a long-term and sustainable way. But it's a tough, really tough environment right now. And there's a danger. I think many of us are really quite fearful that across several of these major institutions that there will be a shortfall, that they'll have to live with less than what is really needed. Say a few words about, you know, what's the path forward under this level of uncertainty? Well, it comes back to the point that I opened with, which is that if you view this as a health or a development problem and you're trying to scrounge around in the couch and find resources from health and development budgets to address this problem, it's going to be a really, really hard problem. If you view it as a security problem, it's just a problem that needs to be addressed. I hope this isn't overly subtle, but distinguishing between investments, continued investments to address the current needs with COVID-19 versus needs for future preparedness. And if you make smart investments, your investments for COVID-19 can be Build you in. Can build you in, but you have, to, you have to do that deliberately and strategically. I think the fundamental problem is a, a category mistake that the world is making. My son just came back from a trip to Northern Ireland and one of his tours around Belfast, whether you agree with the sentiment or not, the tour guides who were a Protestant and a Catholic who had been impacted by the Troubles said, you know, viewing the conflict in Northern Ireland as a conflict between Protestants and Catholics is like viewing the Vietnam War as a conflict between Buddhists and Christians. I mean, yes, that's more or less how the sides broke down, but the root cause was not over religious doctrine. The root cause was different. And I think if we frame pandemic preparedness as a subset of a, you know, health and development, we're guilty of a category mistake. And we can't find our way to the right solutions if we don't understand the problem that we're trying to solve. We ask all of our guests at the close to tell us what gives you the greatest hope and optimism in this period looking forward? Two things. I am actually tremendously encouraged, even though we've seen tremendous inequities emerge in access to critical medical countermeasures and resources during the pandemic. Those gaps have been the focus of intense global scrutiny. And I think that's an advance. I, I think the gaps have been there. They're now closing. And they're closing after really a, a relatively short period. I mean, vaccines have only been available for about 14 months. And, and already this extraordinary, gap, yeah. Yeah, the gaps are beginning to close. And I think that sets the groundwork for much more equitable responses in the future. The other thing that gives me hope is that I think the progress that we have made with the technologies for countermeasure production during the pandemic actually lay the, the groundwork for future preparedness. We have validated a whole new suite of 
tools. We have seen concepts of preparedness in terms of the prior investment in solving the problems for coronavirus vaccine development in advance of COVID emerging. We've seen the payoff. And I, I think now we can extrapolate that to preparedness more broadly against other viral families that present potential pandemic threats. So we actually now have a validated set of tools. We have global awareness of the threat. We have political focus, as we've discussed, that is in danger of fragmentation. And I think we have an opportunity to turn global preparedness from a concept into an engineering project. And, and that gives me hope. Well, thank you so much. It's really been terrific having this opportunity to speak with you this morning. I wish you the best here at the Munich Security Conference and hope it all works out well. Thanks, Steve. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 